Thank you, Father. And happy Easter to all. My topic this evening, evening, the cardinal virtue of temperance, must begin with a discussion of passion, specifically those passions which regard simple, sensual pleasures, primarily those of food and sexuality. The nature of the passions and their relation to happiness and virtue has been at the heart of a passionate debate, pun intended, for millennia. The Epicureans sought happiness in a life of pleasure. Cicero defined passion, pathos, as a perturbation, a commotion of the mind, repugnant to reason and against nature. This concept compelled the Stoics to contend that happiness in man's nobility lay in man's ability to rationally choose those things which accord with human nature. Human nature. If passions are contrary to nature, the noble Stoic sage must expel them. Even Bernard of Clairvaux and other great spiritual writers spoke of taming the wild beast within. Today, we also find those who exploit the non-rational nature of passion, since it belongs to both animals and human beings. And they use this to exonerate illicit human action. Some of this is rooted in David Hume. In his treatise on human nature, he presented several philosophical arguments for these ideas. He wrote that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Such an idea is incomprehensible to a Thomist. Certainly reason is the slave of passion in a vicious man, but the deviation is not the rule. To say that reason ought only to be the slave undermines both the Thomistic and Christian anthropology of a rational human being. Hume was not ignorant of Aquinas' teaching and certainly included him among, quote, those who affirm that virtue is nothing but a conformity to reason, unquote. Or those who hold that there exists an immutable measure of right and wrong, which imposes obligation. Now, it should be noted, Hume did not negate reason's role in judging truth and falsehood, but he argued that reason does not determine or produce virtue. It merely perceives or discovers it. Therefore, though reason might rightly judge what is, we can never move from is to ought. Now, my purpose in selecting Hume as an interlocutor here is not because I wish to address the is-ought debate, nor to justify his errors, nor even to reduce his error to misreading Aquinas. The reason I mentioned Hume and his overturning of passion and reason is that it offers Thomas an opportunity to revisit a few points. The necessity of passion, the proper role of reason in the discussion of virtue, and more specifically regarding the virtue of temperance, which perfects the sense appetite. What is the role of passion with virtue? Now, this is a broad topic. Therefore, rather than just give a broad overview of everything, I would like to begin by highlighting a few essential points regarding the sense appetite and passion, including a distinction between human passion and the passions of non-rational animals. Then I will address a few basic principles of temperance. And with this foundation, I'll use a simple example to distinguish the quasi-virtue of continence from temperance. I do this because a proper understanding of this distinction 
helps us to avoid muddling true virtue with individual good works. It shows us how reason comes to bear on the sense appetite, not only as to temperance per se, moderation of food and drink and sexuality, but also other virtues which perfect the sense appetites, like courage, patience, humility. So the sense appetite. Aquinas argued that human virtue is directed to the good defined according to the rule of human reason. But Hume and others who criticized Thomas ignore the fact that Thomas did not believe reason alone is sufficient for virtue. So though he emphasizes reason, he says there's something more that's needed. Consider an example, a diabetic man rightly judges that he should not eat chocolate Easter eggs, but that does not mean he will not eat them. His decision, while properly ordered to the good of his health, requires something more to help him perform the virtuous act. This virtue is not merely about judging what is good, but actually doing it. And Thomas argues that this depends on moral virtues which rectify the appetite and not just the rational appetite, the will. Because even if the man's will desires the good presented by reason, he wills not to eat Easter eggs. He may still eat them. Because as Thomas argues, a man might by reason know he should avoid strong drink, Easter eggs. He knows what happens when he eats Easter eggs if he's diabetic, and he doesn't like the results. However, if he has no moral virtue to direct his appetite, this knowledge is useless. Paul said the same thing in simpler words. I do not do what I wish to do, but I do the very thing I hate. This is actually a proof that the powers of the soul, the powers which move me, must be more than just two, the intellect and the will. If this man is moved to eat the chocolate eggs, a choice contrary to what he knows, contrary to what he desires is true good, then there must be another power which moves him, and this we call the sense appetite. And since a power is named for its act, the sense appetite is so named because having sensed something, whether by the external or internal senses, it moves towards the object that we perceive as good or away from the object that we perceive as evil. Now, having said that, we need to address another little point here because Thomas, following Aristotle, argues that this sense appetite is not merely passive, not merely moved. Rather, we are a, it is a moved mover. If properly ordered, the sense appetite is naturally moved by the rational appetite or moved by what it senses. But the sense powers also move the rational powers. Seeing the chocolate eggs, the man desires them, and may even move his reason to say, oh, one egg won't hurt me. Here, an analogy that comes from Aristotle, his political analogy is quite helpful in understanding this point. Aristotle said that the soul of a rational man governs our other powers in a twofold manner. 
It governs the physical body with a despotic rule, a tyrant. I choose to move my finger and my finger moves. The nature of my finger as a power is like that of a slave to my soul. My finger cannot resist. Just as the athlete who trains and exercises his muscles, despite the aches and pains, so that they can move easily and respond to the command of the will. So aside from its nutritive powers and within its natural capacities, the body is simply moved and has no choice in the matter. But the same is not true of our sense appetite. As Thomas argues, it has something of its own whereby it can resist the commands of reason. This is why Aristotle argued that reason governs the sense appetite and the passions, not as a tyrant to slave, but rather with the political power of the wise ruler to the free citizen. The prudent ruler guides the free citizen knowing that he or she has the power to reject counsel. So returning to the diabetic, his sense appetite was moved by the sight and memory of how good chocolate eggs taste. But the same appetite moved him to eat them, even when reason said they would make him sick. Now, what of the passions of the sense appetite? We call the movements of the sense appetite passion or passio. The term comes from the Greek pathe and the Latin pati, and these mean to undergo, to endure, again, a passive sense. In, De, in his De Veritate, Thomas answers the question of where are these passions, these movements. In a proper sense, they imply this transformation, this loss of a contrary, Thomas would say. And he says this is primarily attributed to the body, but more properly, an act of the sense appetite. What is the point here? Are our passions purely of the body? No, they are, not so, they are not isolated from the intellect or from the will and the soul. Rather, Thomas says, the passions are in the soul accidentally. Because why? Because we are a body-soul composite. The passions, though seated in a sense appetite, as a movement of, Thomas again will say, the non-rational soul. This non-rational doesn't mean they're contrary to reason but they're without reason. Now, let's move forward though as to these passions. How do we understand them? This topic of move mover and the soul raises another important distinction. And that is the distinction between the senses in human beings, rational beings, and those senses of other animals. We both share homo sapiens, Dogs, cats, pigs share the sense appetite with proper movements of passion responding to a sensible object. But the similarities are going to end very quickly. The animal has a sentient soul, but not a rational soul. Therefore, its nature and good and the good that it acts are it's all in accord with its sentient powers. But in rational beings, the soul is at once sensitive and rational. So though the soul's sentient powers as such are indeed, as we said, non-rational, they participate in reason, which is unlike the same sense powers, 
with similar sense powers in animals. C.S. Lewis made a comment on this. He said, in themselves, passions do not even rise to the dignity of error. Human passions are, they're neutral. They're not in themselves good or evil. This is the sentient part. They're mere responses to sense data from the imagination, memory, sense, sight, touch. Desiring chocolate eggs in itself is neither good nor evil. However, in the rational nature, subject to the command of the reason and will, these passions can become morally good or evil by participation. So our passions are naturally designed to follow reason. Consider an example, Thomas uses this, and he's explaining the difference between the sense powers, the passions, responses of animals and men, and uses the example of a sheep. A man and a sheep see a wolf. Both the sheep and the man perceive, apprehend the presence of the wolf. But the way in which they know the wolf differs. The sheep senses the danger, passion, fear, and runs, solely in accord with its natural instinct. Man perceives the wolf and may succumb to the passion of fear and run away. But his human cognition does not end with his senses. Common sense in man brings together memories, intentions, evaluations, and even compares so that even if he has this initial, initial intention of fear, he also knows if those are his sheep, he wants to protect them. He has a gun. He doesn't need to be as afraid of the wolf. And reason may come to bear on the passion, and he runs toward the wolf to shoot it. So covering these points very briefly and quickly, just a short conclusion before we move directly into temperance. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on passions is essential to his anthropology. And at his anthropology, we could say is essential to his understanding of passions. Understanding the human person as an incarnated soul, which helps us to avoid, especially relating to passions and also the virtue of temperance, we have to avoid idealism, as well as what I would say is a postmodern dualist anthropological theory, many various theories here. This dualism either overemphasizes the spiritual or overemphasizes the material. Reinhard Kutcher um, spoke to this and said, we have to avoid angelism, ignoring the passions, or animalism, whereby our passions solely rule us. Either of these positions absolutize a partial truth. And we don't have the full integration of body and spirit. Why is that so essential? Because this is where the virtue of temperance comes into play. It is this integration. So Aquinas highlights the essential role played by the body. The virtuous human being is not an angel, but flesh and blood. So Thomas would say, we are fully human, not in spite of passion. Not by silencing passions, but because of passion. But how do we do that? This is where we must have the virtue of temperance. Now, if virtue in general is an excellence, a perfection of the power, the virtue of temperance is defined as a perfection of the sense appetite, which we already discussed. More specifically, the concupiscible appetite, which is 
pertaining to those things that are most seductive, those pleasures that deal with touch and taste, that provide the most intense sensual delectation. They're the hardest. And this is why Thomas will say, temperance is such a great virtue. The greatness of the virtue is that even though it is about the basis things, food and sex, those things which are most necessary, food for the survival of the individual, sex for the survival of the species, they are therefore in accord with nature and desirable and pleasurable so that we will continue to survive as an individual and as a species. Since they are most base, furthest from reason, how great must be the virtue which can moderate these desires and bring them under the guidance of reason. Now, the question we face is, how do we arrive at this temperance, at virtuous passion? While it is fine to say that our passions are supposed to be ordered by nature, we are all quite aware that we have unruly passions. Surveys Pink Hairs chose to call them the menagerie within, and they can be obstacles to virtue. Now, our individual menagerie may differ from others. It can be as diverse as the proud domineering lion is from the scared rabbit, or as diverse as the envious serpent is from the mocking monkey, or the bragging rooster from a brutal rhinoceros, or the insipid jellyfish. We can extend this analogy of the menagerie. Why? How does virtue come into this menagerie? Well, consider the, the, the lion trainer, tamer, or the horse trainer. I'll take the horse at this point. The skill of the trainer doesn't lie merely in brute force, anger, and whips. Anyone can yell, and anyone can whip an animal. But the horse trainer has a higher, more difficult role. He seeks both to restrain the animal's power and to guide it so that the animal will perform a specific action at the specific time. The power of the expert trainer, the power of virtue, lies in compelling the animal to obey by harnessing the natural strength to accomplish great deeds. So too the virtuous person. We do not crush the passions or whip them merely into shape. But reason somehow enters in, is brought to bear on these passions so that we can use their energy to face life's challenges. Now, air can um, enter in here as well, though, if we forget that this is merely an analogy when I speak of training or control. Too often we use these terms when we speak of passion and we compare having virtue, training my passions with training the tiger or the puppy and the two-year-old. Now, the point here is sometimes this training is merely a tyrannical rule. The tiger is captured and is now the slave of the trainer. The well-trained puppy even reaches maturity by simply performing the acts it was trained to do. Is this the same for the two-year-old child? Now, we do want the child to do what it is trained to do, but this is only one step on a much longer journey. Controlling, merely controlling our emotions is not a bad thing, but it falls short of mature integration and perfect self-mastery. So what does it mean to have virtue in this sense appetite, specifically the concupiscible appetite? 
How does reason come to bear on the sense appetite? And its movements of passion, which include love, hatred, desire, aversion, joy, sorrow. I would even add a question of what does virtue look like? What does this temperance look like? What does it even feel like? Or returning to the political analogy, how does the human being become a strong city, a virtuous man or woman? What Aristotle called a person with perfect self-mastery, the true virtue of human excellence, whereby the temperate person abstains from bodily pleasure and even enjoys the very act of so doing. Or the brave man, more of fortitude, but still analogous here, faces dangers gladly, or at least without distress. How do we avoid being the intemperate man who instead finds such acts irksome or the coward who feels distress in these good acts? Now, Thomas compares this movement, this growth in virtue to stages of natural growth, infancy, childhood, adulthood. And so there's something of this in this process of acquiring virtue. Now, regarding this growth, in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle devotes an entire chapter to this discussion of temperance, incontinence, continence, and he actually identifies six categories related to human self-mastery. He starts with brutishness, like the animal, vice, then incontinence, a lack of self-mastery. And then once you start to acquire virtue, he moves to continence, virtue, and then perfect godlike self-mastery, which does not belong to man. Now, Thomas immediately sets aside the two extremes, and he focuses instead on these four main points of temperance, the full virtue, continence, a quasi-virtue, incontinence, not a virtue, but it's different from intemperance, which is the full vice. Now, I would just note here, Thomas, in setting aside Aristotle's comment on the godlike virtues, Thomas still has these. This would, of course, be the infused virtues and then the exemplar virtues in Christ himself. All right, but let's, how do we, um, how do we examine this? I'd like to use an example, a simple example, the pub. Temperance has the simple, sensible good or evil as its object, as we said. And so we could use many different examples to examine temperance, continence, incontinence, intemperance. But I'm going to have four friends at a bar. Joseph. Joseph has the virtue of temperance. Martha. Martha is continent. Peter. Peter's incontinent. And Jezebel. Jezebel is vicious. She's intemperate. Now, for our purposes, none of these four are alcoholics, which is important because that's, an, that's another whole discussion, which doesn't have to do specifically with virtue because there are other biochemical and other psychological issues there. Now, all four, Joseph, Martha, Peter, and Jezebel, have all enjoyed a couple of beer. Well, if they're me, they only had one, but each has reached their personal limit. Whether they had one or three, however they, many they've had. But each knows that for themselves personally, another beer 
will have a negative effect either physically, psychologically, in some way they know they shouldn't have another beer. And at that moment, their friend Eve walks in and she offers to buy a round for everyone. How do Joseph, Martha, Peter, and Jezebel respond? First, let's deal with Jezebel. She's the easiest. She's intemperate. She does not have the virtue of temperance at all. And she has the vice, meaning she has little care for moderation at this point. Her passions lead the way and she willingly accepts another beer with gusto. In the context of stages of virtue and vice, Thomas would identify Jezebel as childish, since both the child and the intemperate person, here the intemperate woman, is governed by passion. The child and the intemperate person desire something disgraceful, contrary to reason. They're self-willed and they're stubborn when they don't get their way. They can't restrain themselves, but have to be restrained by another. As a vice, Thomas would say it is habitual and would compare it to a chronic disease, since Jezebel has no right estimate of the end, and that's going to be a problem. She may not be moved by vehement desire, but, or she is moved by this desire, but also she pursues it with irrational pleasure. Now, on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum is temperate Joseph. Now, not only do Joseph's reason and will coincide in moving him away from having another beer, but since he has the virtue of temperance and it resides in the sense appetite, not in the intellect and not in the will, his passions in some way align with the rational powers. He easily responds, no, thank you, Eve, I've had enough. Now, we'll come back to Joseph a little later, but let's just set him aside for now. What about Martha and Peter? Continence and incontinence. These are critical for understanding our whole argument and really understanding how to get to where Joseph is. Now, most of all, unfortunately, fall into these two categories of continence and incontinence. That is, hopefully, most of us are not vicious seeking simply to fulfill our every pleasure. But nor are we at the point where our pleasures freely and easily and with joy follow reason. When Eve offers the beer, Martha and Peter both know, as we said, they should not have another. Also, both have a good will, the fundamental desire to do the good. But they lack the virtue of temperance. So they both experience disordered passion. They're inclined towards the sensible good, which is not in accord with reason. They're similar to the cartoon character with the angel on one shoulder saying, oh, you don't want another beer, say no. Remember what happened last Friday? Look at Joseph. And then the devil on the other side, the unruly passion whispering, oh, another beer won't hurt you. Oh, you shouldn't refuse Eve's kind offer, et cetera, et cetera. These are similar for both Martha and Peter. And this raises two more questions. The first, if Martha and Peter, continent and incontinent, are so similar, do they respond in the same way? To answer this question, 
Thomas identifies continence as a quasi-virtue. What does he mean by that? It means there's something that conforms to reason in some way. Therefore, in spite of Martha's disordered passions, she will normally act like Joseph and refuse the beer. Her actions look like Joseph's. What's different? Joseph faces no struggle with his sense appetite. Martha has to control and deny her passions. But she is normally able to do this, to contain herself and perform the good act, but without the ease of the temperate man. So here's one of the differences. Martha follows Joseph. Incontinent Peter, on the other hand, lacks even this quasi-virtue, something that follows in some way in accord with reason. And so he will normally do what? He will normally resist and follow the devil. Resist the passion. He can't do it. And he accepts Eve's offer with Jezebel and has another beer. But the difference of their actions raises a second question. If they are rational, their sense powers are so similar, where does the difference lie? Why do they act differently? If they both know they shouldn't do it, they both will not to do it, but yet one does and one does not. It can't lie merely at the level of knowledge of good and evil, because as we said, the temperate person, the continent person, the incontinent person, all acknowledge something of the true good in not drinking another beer. Nor is it merely in the inordinate movement of passion, the lack of temperance, because continence, incontinence, and intemperance lack the ordering of the sense appetite. Thomas will argue that the vehement passion alone is insufficient cause for incontinence. Why? Because, the, as we said, the continent person might experience this as well. We have to look beyond reason, and we have to look beyond the sense appetite for the answer. And Thomas will say, therefore, what? Continence, Martha's continence, must reside in that power of the soul whose act is to choose. Well, that's the will. Well, wait, but Peter and Martha both willed to choose the good, right? So where's the difference in regards to what about the will? Even though they both will to choose the good, something about the will is different in Martha and in Peter. Martha, the continent person, though her desires are vehement, she chooses not to follow them. Why? Why is she able to choose? Because she has a strong will. She's struggling, but we say she's winning because of her will, not because of the vehemence of the passions. What's Peter's problem? Peter wants to do the good. He has the vehement passions, but Thomas will say he is too soft, too weak. And so he chooses to follow the passions, even though reason forbids. He's struggling and he's losing. He's succumbing to the strength of passion. This is why Thomas identifies incontinence with, as I said, an inordinate softness. Now, this fourfold distinction, as I said, helps us to grasp more fully the steps along the spectrum that stretches from vice, incontinent, intemperance, to virtue, temperance. Now, certainly we should seek the full virtue of temperance, but isn't it good if we aren't intemperate? And maybe we're still along the line of incontinence 
or continence. Now, let's look first at the incontinent man again, Peter. He's a step beyond childishness. His passions still play a dominant role, though. But without patience and courage, he will not persevere. This is why we can return to that with the comment of something of training. He must somehow control these passions. As we sometimes train the child to not throw a tantrum so the child is disciplined. Here the pleasure-pain principle comes in, which I'll leave aside, but... Peter, the incontinent man, must train his passions in some way. But he can only do this if he has the strength, he, if he can strengthen his will. How does he do that? By the knowledge of what the true good is, the knowledge of what will happen if he does the evil, and that hopefully, also, especially grace, he will slowly perhaps make small choices Perhaps he only has one more beer this time instead of the five that he had the last week. Well, that's a step forward. And it's a strengthening of his will in a small manner. It's a simple step. And each step is a move closer to quasi-virtue of continence and then also to temperance. The difficulty remains because of his unruly appetites. But as I say, it is a step towards them fulfilling their proper nature. Because remember, the appetites of the rational man, Thomas says, they wait for the command of the will, which is the superior appetite. So training is good insofar as it will help us move along the continuum to continence. But when I arrive at continence, that's not still full virtue. It could be akin to something of a Kantian deontological approach to virtue, whereby I deny my natural desires in favor of following the law. I'm the good Catholic because I struggle and I do the good. Ooh, that's good, but not fully virtue. One does not attain virtue, remember, in spite of passion. It belongs to moral good, Thomas says, to be moved towards the good both by the will and by the sensible appet sensitive appetite. So the will is a step, but the full virtue for man, the full virtue of temperance requires not only the strong will, but also the virtue in the appetite. This occurs when the appetite possesses virtue, which again, Thomas will say is nothing else than what? A habitual conformity. Habitual. How do I acquire that habit? As we said, Peter has to at least say perhaps no to more beers than he had the last week. Slowly trying to strengthen that will. This habitual conformity is acquired by like acts. Repeated acts. But those acts have to grow in intensity. So Peter may say, oh, I'm only going to have four this week. Well, that was less than six last week. Next week, he may only have three. Maybe he does three for three weeks. Well, then he gets down to two. Whoa, he's moving. The will becomes stronger, suppresses those vehement passions, and eventually he will find that it is easier to say no. By way of conclusion, virtue lies in the mean. A healthy, intellectual, spiritual, psychological approach to sensual good, and it requires avoiding extremes. 
all the virtues are connected with prudence. So we must avoid the idea that the passions can run as they will, where they are not subject to reason. Because if we, we have to bring them under this guidance of reason because they can hinder reason. They can distract reason. We attend too much to what pleases us. They can be contrary to reason when they're excessive. As Aristotle says, bodily pleasures destroy the estimate of prudence. Peter's having a problem being prudent. Jezebel isn't doing it at all. Passions can also fetter reason. Vehement passion, the bodily disturbance. But just as dangerous is the error that condemns all passion. <clears throat> Returning to C.S. Lewis, he has a commentary at one point entitled Men Without Chess. And he makes reference to the scriptural terms of the heart and the flesh. He argues that man is not only moved by the intellect and the will, but also by the sense, appetite, and the passions. Unlike the angels, just as Thomas would argue, rational powers need the passions, but we need the virtue of temperance in those passions, whereby they are properly ordered according to reason. So C.S. Lewis wrote, though, as to this need, without the aid of trained emotions, our intellect is powerless against our animal nature. And he uses the example of in a battle. It's not syllogism, logical arguments that are going to help the scared soldier if he has reluctant nerves and muscles to stay in his post. What does he need? He needs the chest. Lewis goes on to say, the head rules the belly through the chest. Here he's using this as an analogy of the passions. And he, he speaks here of this chest as a seat of magnanimity, great soulness. He says this middle element, the chest, is what makes man, man. These passions are what humanize virtue in a sense. They're the bodily essence of virtue. And he said, but the danger is what? That we remain in the spirit and we make men without chest, men and women without passion, who can thereby, will not be able thereby to really arrive at true virtue. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Catherine, um, for your very um, thought-provoking, um, very complete talk. Um, are you ready to take a few questions? Sure, yes. Okay, so um, I'm going to take the moderator's privilege um, and ask the first question, if you don't mind. Um, because I think in a lot of discussions of temperance I've heard, it often feels like, you know, people have this attitude of like, we modern people, how can we ever hope to be temperate in this world? Do you have any thoughts about maybe some of the challenges we have, but how maybe Thomas can give us a vision of actually true, the true virtue of temperance? There are many challenges, I would say today, absolutely. But there have been challenges throughout history. I didn't include a part, just, just the discussion of original sin. We've been impacted by original sin for since the beginning. And that impact of original sin means what? It means that 
our intellect is darkened, our will is weakened, and our sense appetites, our passions do not follow in accord with the intellect and the will. And they fight against you. Now, the problem today is what type of temptations do we have? Whether we speak of sexuality, um, just because also if you want to think of society, society doesn't help us as it may have helped in the past to fight against some of these obstacles. Also, we have new temptations in the sense of technology, because technology brought into the home, as we would say, pornography, um, so many things that, that used to you had to go out to find in order to commit those sins. Now, you could commit sins at home, but it's so much easier today because of technology. It's just so much easier. So in that sense, we're still human. Passions are pretty much the same. And, you know, Augustine didn't need technology to struggle with sexual sin. So, and he did it. <laughs> and he succeeded. So I would say for all of us, I think there's part of our human nature, in spite of those challenges, you know, we can say, well, it's just too difficult today. No, I wouldn't say it is. We still have also, just as those challenges are there, so too are those calls of virtue. And that desire for the good is just as strong as it was. So the type of challenges, those have changed. But I'll leave it at that. That's, uh, especially the Augustine line. I, I think I'll have to use that for sure. Um, Father Thomas, yeah. have a question? Yeah, um, I was wondering, so you're, I, I love the way you brought together the, the passions and the sort of bodily aspect of the human person and, and the, that right ordering of body and, and, uh, and, and the intellect and will all together. Uh, but it brought to mind um, the idea, well, there are certain maladies that we know, bodily maladies that can come in. Um, and you know, so there are aspects of disordered passions that come from bad habits and cultural sorts of things, but there are also just physical ailments or psychological ailments. So, I mean, like an extreme version, perhaps you could think of something like a Tourette's syndrome where there's sort of this, this, this innate or, or just, just involuntary speaking out and, 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 and things like that. Does that, I was just curious your thoughts on, so if, there's a disorder in the bodily structure and thus something of the passions, you know, that are at least not normal going on there. Does that make virtue impossible or does it make virtue different for that person than it would for someone else? I'm just curious, how, what, how does the virtue of temperance look, look, what does that look like for someone who might struggle with some variety of these sorts of psychological or bodily ailments? Well, first I think I would address the principle here when we're dealing with the virtues of temperance, fortitude, and prudence, and I'm, I'm linking those three together just because Th Thomas will speak of the mean of the virtue. And the mean of the virtue in those three virtues specifically, but if we go just to temperance, that mean of the virtue, how do I know what's virtue for me? We can use the example back to the chocolate eggs. Mm -hmm. What's virtue for the diabetic man? What's virtue for me? What's virtue for, let's say, the person who has the chocolate addiction? Just using that term lightly. Yeah. Oh. Well, the mean, there's something of a mean in general as to food, as to the extreme of gluttony and just overeating, which we can see with everyone to one sense of somebody who just eats way too much. 
And then you can see the person who doesn't eat anything at all, the abstemious person. But in between where the virtue lies is a broad mark. Now we have to hit the mean, but the mean is not a single bullet point in the middle of the target. The mean is hitting in that target between those virtues. And that mean may differ for us between individuals. It may even be different for me at different times in my life. If I'm under excess stress, I may be eating more than I normally would, but it may be helping me to get through this stressful situation, which in a non-stressful situation, I may need to be more abstemious regarding my food intake. But perhaps I'm eating a little bit more, but it's helping me just to calm me down perhaps in ways or helping me to deal with these struggles. So whether I would say not even if it, it could be something that's like you mentioned the Tourette syndrome, it could be an actual malady. It could also be even situations. And so we have to take into consideration, okay, where are the boundary lines, number one? And for the boundary lines, as we say, the intemperance here in general is going to be either of those extremes. We have to avoid those. Then we have to slowly try to move. And the person, the diabetic, for him to move to virtue, it's going to look different because he's going to have to totally abstain from the chocolate edge, probably. But he has to do it whereby he will have the virtue not only in abstaining, but in being able to do it easily. My virtue may in having, I may be able to have the egg. <laughs> but do I have to have the egg? <laughs> That's, so I hopefully that answered a little bit of the question, but I would say we have to keep in mind that mean, that subjective mean of temperance. Thank you, Father. Yeah. Um, we have a really interesting question from Don on Zoom. Um, with the popularity of Exodus 90, are you familiar? It's a... I'm a little familiar with it, not, not too much. Yeah. A little bit of it. Yeah. To our... It's about men... The men, extreme virtue in men, the Catholic men, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it involves things like um, cold showers, not watching TV, very strict dietary rules. Kind of like the ancient flagellation, sitting on a sty, the stylites, etc. Various forms of mortification. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but he asks, um, he, he says that this is kind of a sign that some people are trying to acquire virtue, but it doesn't seem like it always works, um, just looking around. Um, and he asks, what do you think is the biggest reason for the failure of those who are trying to acquire virtue? I think here the challenge comes into, back to that distinction between temperance and continence, first of all. Is it just my will and I'm doing this because I want to do it and I can do it? And I think I've arrived at virtue at that point. Because if I think that's virtue, because it's falling short of the true good and it's merely my idea of virtue, which is not in full accord, I may think I've arrived and I won't have. And therefore, I'll easily fall back. But um, I would also say there's the whole question of what is this full integration of virtue? It's not merely in moderating those appetites. Those appetites are moderate, but in accord with 
my fullness as a human being, my state of life, my obligations, what is prudent in this moment. And so if I don't have a fully integrated understanding of how those mortifications fit into my life, there will be problems. Let me just throw, put up one more point there. When we're taking on extra mortifications, the first test, if you go back to the Desert Fathers and throughout Catherine of Siena, I always have to bring her in. The first test for whether I should do an extra mortification is a question of obedience to my state in life and my current obligations. And so if I'm taking on those extra mortifications and I haven't begun with my basic obligations and I don't have those in order, those extra mortifications are gonna help me very much because I don't understand what my life, what God really is asking me as to mortifications. Catherine even says this. At one point, she was tempted by the devil, and she took it to be do more flagellations. And she thought, this is what's going to help me. And the Lord ended up, she thought, nope, I chose my way of mortification. God had a different way, and it didn't help me. Um, yeah, perhaps uh, we should have had that portion of it before Lent. <laughs> yes, yes. This is a great virtue to deal with during Lent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and but also in the Easter season because of the chocolate eggs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Maybe more of a need for temperance. Um, um, yeah, just to follow up a bit on that. Um, how do you think, um, especially now that in our culture, we just don't have as many... Um, ritualized ways of doing penance or even our fasting requirements are kind of low. Do you have more thoughts about how you would kind of sort that out? What is, what, what's just the proper basic level of mortification? Yes, yeah, this I would say is definitely a, a challenge that we face and not in the Catholic church as well as outside. Society as a whole, we do not see anything. This is the whole point of you know, my virtues are natural to me and therefore I should follow them. And it's unnatural to not follow my passions. Mm -hmm. Now that's a secular perspective, but it has its impact even on the Catholic church and on Catholics because we live in this society. So, but for Catholics to address it specifically, if you want to look at the Catholic church and our understanding or any Christian following Christ, Christ preached sacrifice and he demonstrated it on the cross, which we just celebrated in Easter. So there has to be something of this saying no to myself, but why? If I don't have a rationale, if I don't have a reason for saying no to my passions, why would I do it? So I think part of it is even the understanding, you know, just not even from a purely Christian perspective, in a general perspective, what does not getting drunk on every Friday night, how does that impact my family? How does it impact my work? How does it impact my life? How are these, how is this lack of restraint affecting me? Affecting my work? So I think we just have to take a simple common sense approach on one level and look at what happens when I don't, I eat whatever I want. Even the secular world tells us that it's good to fast at times. Science says it's good. So I think science can also help us and the secular world can also help us to see we have the Christianized element of that mortification. But even in the world, it's telling us we need to mortify. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.